0: From the studios of the Private Client Network in Midtown Manhattan, welcome to Luxury on Location. This dynamic new podcast features conversations with luxury realtor Kevin Snedden, founder of the Private Client Network at Compass and his Private Client Network partners. In this, our 10th episode, we're turning the tables on Kevin, as he will transition from our host to our guest. I'm Julie Harding, a member of Kevin's private client team, and I will be interviewing Kevin about the New York real estate market, his private client team, and his private client network. Kevin is quite an influential leader in the luxury real estate arena, not only in New York, but nationwide, and here's why. After a successful career in financial services, Kevin made the move from Wall Street to Main Street and never looked back. A perennial player in the high-end market, Kevin has sold some of the finest properties in New York City and its surrounding areas. With clients comprising the global 1%, Kevin's sales frequently cross the $10 million, $20 million, and even the $30 million thresholds. Kevin has also created the most influential top luxury broker network in the industry, connecting the luxury markets in a way that's never been done. And in case anyone's counting, in 2021, Kevin and his private client team sold over 152 million in luxury real estate, and his private client network collectively sold over 7 billion. What we admire most about Kevin is his keen intellect his visionary thinking, and his absolute integrity. We are all so very grateful that Kevin founded the Private Client Network, and we are certainly delighted to have him as our special guest on Luxury on Location. Okay, so here we are. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kevin Snedden. Hello, Julie. <laughs> we are very excited to get to turn the focus on to you our fearless leader. So why don't we start with you talking a little bit about your background and how you got into real estate?
1: Sure. I started in financial services. I actually got an internship at American Express. I was fortunate to be able to be offered an internship, no pay, but a summer internship at Amex right after graduating from undergrad. And I was able to parlay that into a full-time position in marketing, starting at the very bottom Level And Amex actually paid for my grad school at night, and I had a long and I feel very successful career at American Express, lasting 12 years. And I would say that the success that I have today is based on the foundation that I built at American Express. And when you're 10, 12 years in financial services— You make a decision, you're either going to, you're in it for the long haul and either you stay at that firm or you're going to go to another bank or something of that nature. And I decided to pivot and become an entrepreneur because I really had a thing for real estate that sort of stemmed from childhood and we can get into that a little bit, Mm. but at that point was really just passionate about wanting to go out and make my mark in this world and I can tell you that at the time, my parents, <laughs> you know, couldn't believe that I was going to walk away from a career at American Express. That's where I a was, big.
0: That's a big brave yeah, move.
1: Where I was a vice president. I have to tell you, like I'm the son of a New York City fireman with five kids, and I can tell you when I became a vice president at American Express, my father in particular was never so proud. And when I told him I was going to walk away from that and go into real estate, you can imagine how that conversation went. But what I did tell my dad is at that point, I was single, no children. And if there was ever a time to go out and see if I could make it in this world as an entrepreneur, this was the time. And trust me, it's going to work out. And I've learned so much here at Amex that I'm just going to parlay that into a successful career in real estate.
0: Very, very courageous. That's a big move. Tell us a little bit about how you went from the corporate background. What spurned the interest in real estate?
1: Sure. So if you go back to my high school days and being the son of a New York City fireman, my dad had, like most firemen, three jobs. So one of his side gigs was window replacement business. So on Saturday mornings, he used to drag myself and my two brothers out of bed when we were teenagers, and take us to do hard labor on site, and that involved really hauling windows up several flights of stairs in New York City brownstones, particularly in Park Slope. So we didn't love that <laughs> process. <laughs> you know, when you're a teenager and your dad's waking you up at 7 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday to go haul windows all day, that, you know, that's not super enjoyable. But what I did really enjoy was walking through one gorgeous brownstone after another in Park Slope, And anyone that knows Park Slope knows it has some of the most beautiful brownstones that you'll find anywhere. And I really developed an appreciation for those properties. And later in life, when I was at American Express, like most young professionals at that point, we were renting summer houses out in the Hamptons. And through that process, I started to understand, wow, the summer rents that you can get out there could carry a mortgage for an entire year. So I started getting into the investment side. So then I bought a house and then ran it as a summer house and was able to from Memorial Day to Labor Day raise enough money to cover that mortgage and all expenses for an entire year. And a lot of my friends at that point were like, "Why are you even doing this?" and we were out there and they were going to the beach and I'm out looking at real estate in the Hamptons and I said because I think real estate's probably the most amazing investment opportunity that there is. So later on, even at Amex, I started to build spec houses out in the Hamptons. I was investing in with a builder out there and we were building spec houses. So it went from owning rental houses to now, why don't we develop property? So I clearly had a thing for real estate that started in high school and stayed with me all through my career at Amex. So to me, when it was time to say, hey, I'm either a long-time corporate financial services executive, and that's going to be my career, or I'm going to pivot and I'm going to take that knowledge and experience and use that as a foundation to build a successful career as a real estate entrepreneur.
0: Yeah, that entrepreneurial spirit obviously spoke to you and drove you in a different direction than staying on the corporate ladder. Absolutely. Specifically, talk to us a little bit about how you – arrived at managing the luxury market in New York. That's a tough nut to crack. So talk to us about that.
1: Sure, sure. When I got into real estate investment and development, we started to develop some high-end properties. Now, this wasn't only in the Hamptons. I was combining and flipping apartments in New York. And I always felt like if you're going to do this, you might as well do it in the higher end because it's more lucrative. The numbers are larger. The risk is a little greater, but the reward is exponentially greater than doing this at a low level. So, I always felt like the luxury market was the place for me. And After one to two years of doing this as an investor developer, I was able to interact with a lot of real estate brokers in both New York City and out in the Hamptons. And to be honest, I really didn't think that they had a level of business acumen that I felt was required for real success in this industry. So I saw the brokerage arena as a real opportunity for me. So then I decided to transition into the world of brokerage from investment development and rather build houses to sell, just sell houses being built by other developers. So, you know, I started my own boutique brokerage business, and I really positioned myself as delivering a higher level of service than a typical real estate agent, right? So the model is sort of a wealth manager, private banker model just applied to real estate. So the combination of that sort of messaging that I was putting out there And the messaging was going to my Wall Street network. Very high-end Wall Street types started to seek my advice to buy and sell real estate. And then I quickly started to broker in the high end. And I have to say, within a year and a half of being in the business, I sold a $26 million oceanfront out in the Hamptons. And that really just started this ball rolling. And then clearly, the Hamptons is so connected to the city I took that and then in Manhattan started just getting into the high end and then just tapping that Wall Street network and building it out. The first business was called Project Real Estate because that was investment development driven. I rebranded as Private Client Realty and really sent a message out there that I'm delivering a higher level of service than your typical real estate agent. Therefore, high end is really the market that I'm going to dominate in.
0: Yeah, I think it's safe to say anyone who's ever come across Kevin Snedden knows that you have elevated the profession. Certainly, you handle it like a true business professional, it's just elevated to another level that I don't think people are used to. You know, your story of getting to Compass is kind of interesting. Why don't you talk a little bit about why Compass? How'd you get here?
1: Sure. For years, I had this boutique brokerage operation, and I have to tell you, from the very beginning, before I opened my own brokerage business. I obviously visited brokerages in New York City and out in the Hamptons. And and I honestly felt like the overall environment to me was not as... The culture was not as sort of professional as it was working for a Fortune 100 company. So that's why I started my own business, created my own brand, set my own culture. And then I got to a point in about 2017, I started to think about the fact that technology was starting to disrupt this business. And I felt like I wanted to scale my brand. I was doing so well with some really high-end clients that own three, four, five homes. They've wanted me to travel with them. You know, I've done business out in Los Angeles and the Caribbean and obviously in Greenwich and the Hamptons and New York. And I felt like I needed to scale my brand. And I also wanted to sort of arm it with technology. And I wanted to be seen as staying on the forefront of the tech curve versus being rendered more of an old school broker. So I set up a meeting with Robert Refkin, who's CEO of Compass. And that was a pivotal moment in my career because, number one, we really connected and Robert took on his first seed investment from the ex-chairman and CEO of American Express, Ken Chenault, so we had that in common, and I knew that going in, and I said, you know, Ken is one of the most respected people in financial services, and I worked under him there for a dozen years, so if Ken believes in you and Compass, then I do, and so we had a nice connection through that, and then I proceeded to take Robert through my private client model, and this is how I differentiate myself, and I'm essentially doing business out of my house. But look at the client roster that I have. Look at the deals I've done. Look at the volume of business. And now it's time to pair that with Compass and scale it and really just equip it, supercharge it with your technology. And I explained to Robert at that point that I felt like I could take the private client brand nationwide but the way to do it was to really link all the luxury markets with top brokers in all those markets and i thought compass was uniquely positioned to do that because it's all the same company it's not a franchise model and i told robert that i wanted to scale it open up nationwide and just connect the top x broker so that we could in a seamless way service someone that wants to buy 3 4 5 homes in places like Aspen and Miami and the Hamptons and New York and Greenwich. And Robert, and that was music to Robert's ears. He thought Compass was built to do that. And he said, why don't you come and join immediately, and I will help you do that. And Compass then acquired my brokerage business, and I came in, and the rest, as they say, is history.
0: That's a great story. I love that story. Okay. Why don't you frame for our listeners the New York real estate market, how big it is in terms of sales volume, inventory, average, and highest sale in 2021?
1: Yeah, so I'm very excited today, Julia, I have to tell you to talk about New York because most people look at New York from outside of New York and they have different thoughts on New York which are largely inaccurate. And the one thing that I can say that was accurate, and let's just talk about COVID, the COVID dynamic on New York. So, for our listeners out there, whether you're a real estate agent or a consumer, New York was the epicenter of the outbreak of COVID back in March of 2020. When COVID became a pandemic, it was largely centered around New York. And the New York real estate market, as a result, basically flatlined to the point where the governor at the time mandated that real estate agents were not allowed to go out and show real estate for a period of 90 days. So, flatlined in every sense of that word. So New York really got a black eye on it at that point where people just were running out of New York City and they were going to places like the Hamptons and New York suburbs and places like Florida and Aspen and really just a mass exodus out of New York. So you can imagine that people just felt that the New York market was just over, right? And people who were born and raised in New York, like myself, we feel like New York is always going to come back and it always comes back stronger. And when I was back at American Express, where I lived through September 11th, our building was right across the street from the World Trade Center. So at that point in time, after 9-11, everyone thought New York was over. The economic collapse of 2008, everyone felt like Wall Street was sort of over. So you can imagine that everyone on the outside looking in, thought New York was over. But the people here, we know that that's never true. You can never count out New York. What's most interesting for me, and I'm even amazed by the fact, New York is not only back, it's back stronger than ever. So, for example, in 2021, New York had its biggest year ever, over $30 in sales. That's the most real estate that's ever been sold in the history of New York in 2021. So, The year following the COVID outbreak, New York has its best sales on record, 30 billion plus. And that has continued. And into the first quarter of 2022, we just had the best first quarter in the history of New York real estate. So New York is not only back, I would argue that New York is a stronger and healthier market than. Most other markets in the U.S. right now, because most other markets in the U.S. are inventory constrained, New York's a healthy market in that we have a healthy supply of inventory and we have healthy demand and the market is moving. And we're obviously super busy, as you know, Julie, in New York right now. Um, Crazy. And people will still read about New York right now and that we've had some civil unrest and we still have – Certain people that maybe don't want to live in New York full-time, but what I can tell you is everybody wants a piece of New York. And as you know, we are selling a lot of pied-à-terres to people, third, fourth, fifth home. Everyone needs a dose of New York in their life. They need to spend a few months out of the year here. And I think also young professionals have seized on the opportunity when there were values to be had. And if you were paying attention through the pandemic tech companies took larger office footprints in New York because they saw a tremendous value, and they're drawing young tech execs to New York. And I think that in five years' time, New York is going to be as much of a tech hub as it is as a financial services hub, and these young tech professionals are really going to take over the city, and everyone else is going to, that doesn't want to live here full-time is going to have a pied-à-terre because you need a few months of New York in your life.
0: Wow. So, $30 billion in sales. Talk to us about how much of that is driven by high-end. Sure.
1: It's largely driven by the high-end. You know, in New York, the luxury market starts at $4 million. And in 2021, there were more $4 million-plus sales than in any other year. So, not only do we have volume overall with $30 billion-plus in sales, the $4 billion-plus luxury market Was literally on fire and more transactions ever in 2021. So if you go into the ultra high end, just to frame it, you know, we've had, obviously, I'm hosting this usually, and we've had conversations with private client network partners in let's say, Palm Beach and Aspen and Los Angeles, and they're talking to us about $50 million sales and $70 million sales. The high sale in New York in 2021 was $190 million at 220 Central Park South. And what's even more impressive about that is that seller bought that apartment for $93 million in 2019 and flipped it for $190 million in 2021. That also happens to be the second highest sale in the history of the country, only bested by a $240 million sale in the same building, 220 Central Park South, purchased by Ken Griffin in 2019. So, like I said, in other markets, they're talking about $50 million, $70 million. In New York, we have $240 million, $190 million. So, New York is the global capital of ultra-high-end real estate.
0: These numbers can only happen in New York.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And then just speaking about the high-end, personally, in 2021, I sold an apartment on Central Park South, as you know, for $15 million. And believe it or not, that was a fourth home for somebody that really wants to spend the fall in New York, $15 million. <laughs> okay? Okay. And I think even more... Foliage. Yeah, and even <laughs> more interesting than that, a client of ours who lives in the Midwest and rents a townhouse in New York, which he uses maybe once a quarter for 60000 a month, called me up last summer and asked me, a question you know kevin would you rather own a townhouse in new york city or a hamptons oceanfront <laughs> and i said well i'd like to own both but i said if you're looking for some a magical experience for you and your extended family i think a hamptons oceanfront there's nothing better than that and the client proceeded to tell me about something he saw on the internet and sent me out to long island on a special endeavor and i took angela who's sitting here with me now i took angela out with me and I said you have to videotape me walking through this Hamptons oceanfront and explaining it to my client which she did and we sent the video out to my client and he proceeded to buy that property sight unseen for 19 almost 19 million 18 million 750,000 sight unseen incredible and i think that while that's out in the hamptons that speaks to it all emanates from new york and he said to me ultimately i do want to own a townhouse in new york and I'll then I'm going to want an oceanfront within a two-hour drive. And just so happened I bought the oceanfront first. I will buy that townhouse. But everything is connected to the proximity to Manhattan. Absolutely. And I have to tell you, I'm sure there's maybe a handful, but I don't know how many brokers have sold almost a $19 million property sight unseen.
0: Well, on a video. That's pretty great.
1: Yeah, I can tell you the other broker and the seller were amazed that this was happening.
0: Well, here's the thing that doesn't surprise me. Anyone that's working with you trusts you implicitly. So there's no smoke and mirrors. So,
1: Yeah, that's. I'm glad you brought that up because any successful real estate agent will tell you that you have to immediately establish trust with your clients. I don't care how wealthy a client is. A, a real estate asset is a big financial decision. And they have to trust that you are in charge of their best interests, right? And you're not trying to sell them. Like I always tell people, I'm not a salesperson. I am a business person that happens to sell real estate. And my currency in this industry is guidance. I give people the right guidance. And I can tell you, Julian, you know this about me. I've probably talked more people out of buying a piece of real estate than buying it. And when I talk someone out of buying it, they turn to me and they say, I will always use you because you are out for my best interest, And I tell them, I wouldn't sell you a property that I wouldn't sell to one of my children, okay? And that's you have to establish that level of trust, especially in the high end where the numbers are just tremendous.
0: Absolutely. So why don't you take us through your sales this past year? Give us a sense of your numbers.
1: Sure. As you might imagine, in in 2020 with the New York market flatlining, we were hard-pressed to hit the type of numbers that we are often hit. So in 2020, my team and I sold about $80 million in real estate. But in 2021, we sold nearly twice that amount, about 153 million. And we had some high-end sales. We had a $15 million sale. We had the $19 million sale out east. Our average sale for our team was probably around 6 million and the average sale in New York is around 3 million. So we're doing like double the average, which speaks to the fact that we are a high-end team.
0: Why don't you talk to us a little bit about how you differentiate yourself and how your team differentiates itself in the marketplace compared to other teams and
1: agents? Sure. So in terms of how I differentiate myself and it's been that way from the jump is Again, I leverage my financial services background. I'm a business person that happens to sell real estate. And again, my currency is guidance. I give people critical guidance that they use to make the right decisions when it comes to buying or selling high-end real estate assets. So I talk to everyone on the team, as you know, Julie, about what's your essence of your personal brand? What's your elevator pitch, right? And mine is Wall Street to Main Street right? And I just have to say that. What makes you, If someone says, Kevin, what makes you different? Why should I use you versus some other agent? Well, I had a successful career, Wall Street, and I've moved on to Main Street, and I'm applying that to residential assets. And I'm going to give you the same level of service that you're going to get from your wealth manager or your private banker or whatever advisor that you use to make such decisions. And that's just a higher level of service than the average real estate agent is going to provide.
0: I think – What we also talk about often as a team, which trickles down from you, is that you and we are relationship driven versus transactional and that we value character over production. You say that all the time. Those are like your mottos.
1: Yeah, no, thanks for bringing that up. I have to tell you, and it goes back to the conversation that I had with Robert Refkin coming in the door. And to Robert, I said to Robert, to be honest, when I left American Express and became a real estate broker, I was embarrassed to tell people that I was a real estate broker because I just felt like you were looked down upon, you know, and that anyone could get into the real estate business. And the way I thought about it was, well, I'm going to do it better than anybody. And I want to elevate the industry. I want to elevate the profession. I want people to look at real estate brokers differently. And Robert stopped me and he said, we're of the same mindset. And he said, you know, I want Compass to be more like a Goldman Sachs, more like an American Express. And I'd like people that are graduating from top 10 business schools to want to come and work on your team. Like, that's the vision I have for you. That's a vision I have for Compass. And I have to tell you, that was music to my ears because there's always a better way to do something. And the private client brand, which clearly I co-opted from the banking industry and applied it to the real estate industry, puts a message out there that you're operating at a higher level and that you're going to deliver a higher level of service and that you're also, like banks with their clients, you're relationship-driven Not transaction-driven. I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm trying to advise you. And if it's not the right time to buy or sell, I tell you. If it is, I tell you. And I don't just tell you. I demonstrate that with my analytical approach to this. And I can show you from three different vantage points why it's the right time to make a decision. And people really value that level of guidance.
0: There's nothing like a Kevin Snedden email masterpiece. We actually have a little file Right, of emails that you've written when a client is wavering on something, needs more data, needs more information, and you just have a way of opening a door to so much insight and information that whether it's a buyer or a seller, these people just are hungry for and don't seem to be getting from other brokers.
1: No, I appreciate that. And and I do think you owe it to the client if you're going to you can't just say trust me, I'm your advisor. Just do some brokers just tell them, why don't you just do what I'm telling you to do? You have to back it up with the rationale. And I learned early on in this business and I got right into the high end and these people are discerning People. And if you think that we spend a lot of time on analytics, like someone that's worth $300 million or a billionaire who I've dealt with several billionaires, these are the most successful, smartest people in the world. They analyze everything, and they're disciplined in their approach. They're not frivolous with their money. The people that I found that have the most money— care about their money more than others. They really do. And you have to demonstrate to them that you're thoughtful and it's a well-researched sort of decision that you're guiding them to. And I do that with data. I'm a data-driven person. And I will show you, again, from multiple vantage points using real data, how what I'm advising you to do is the logical move. And that's how you influence people.
0: Absolutely. Do you want to talk about a little bit about your team structure, what the team looks like, and how you run
1: the team? Yeah, sure. So, coming into Compass was all about scaling. And as you know, it starts with the team and then it ends with the network, right? So, in talking about the team, number one, I wanted to surround myself with the best people that I could find. And that's something that sort of on our team has happened organically over time, you know, I'm very thoughtful, as you know, about anybody that I'm going to sort of align myself with. And I could tell you, as you know, <laughs> each and every person on this team, it was sort of, we organically sort of naturally crossed paths and then we connected. And then I would invest a lot of time explaining to people like you and Angela, like my sort of vision for the team I'd like to build and how I want to operate and the culture that I want to create and the mark that I really want to leave on this industry. And I think that, I've brought people on, number one, to support. If you're looking to scale a business, you need people to help you do that. You, nobody succeeds. Uh, the title of Robert Rifkin's book is Nobody Succeeds Alone, right? So you need other people to help you. And for me, at this point in my career, it's not about me. I didn't want to name the team, the Kevin Snedden team. It's all about the client, and then it's all about the people that you put around you. So the private client brand speaks to the clients and promises a higher level of service. It also speaks to the people that I want to put on the team and I want them to be like-minded and be rowing in the same direction with me and be into delivering a high level of service and everything that that means, right? So in a real estate, typical real estate transaction probably has a hundred moving parts. And each one of those steps in the process, to me, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And there's always a better way to do it, right? So I look for every step in the process. Are we operating at the highest level, right? And then Our team is a team of people with—they come from different backgrounds, as you know. They've had different professional experiences. We have people from higher education. We have professional acting, like yourself. (laughs) We have all sorts of professional backgrounds on our team, and it's all about complementing skill sets and putting everyone to their highest and best use. And that's really sort of the team that we've built here, as you know, and it's no— it's not a surprise that we keep doubling our business year after year because our clients feel it. We've really optimized how we perform, and we're just growing at such a clip right now. And to me, I'm most proud of seeing people like yourself doing higher-end deals. We've all wanted to elevate our game. Let's get more into the high-end. I say to people, when you increase your average sale, you've just given yourself a raise, right? So let's work to give ourselves a raise. And let's work to sell more real estate. And then every year, let's challenge ourselves. As you know, last year, I didn't have a podcast. And this year, I challenged myself, I want to do something different in this industry to scale my brand and my influence. And I decided I talked to Angela, and I said, why don't we just launch a podcast? And we just did it. And anything that we do on the private client team, there's only one way to do it. That is the right way to do it. And we've invested a lot of time and money and effort into this podcast, and it's no surprise that people in 30 or 40 countries across six continents are listening to this first season of this podcast. So, again, everything that we do, we do a certain way, but I couldn't do any of this without the people on my team that I really want to, I can say on this podcast, a big thank you. And I'm so grateful that I've surrounded myself with such great people. And as you know, Julie, my mantra is run the team like you don't want anyone to ever want to leave. And that's my approach, as you know, to running the team. Not only are we a family and I'm very thoughtful about it and I spend a lot of time with everybody and it is so not about me at this point in my career, but I really don't want anyone to ever want to leave my team.
0: No, you walk the talk. You definitely, I don't think anyone's leaving ever.
1: Yeah, and we have fun, which is great. We, we work hard. We have fun. We care about each other. The clients feel it. We care about the clients. We want to do better. We want to always put our best foot forward. And let's be real here. New York is The pinnacle. New York is the most dynamic and largest and most competitive real estate market in the world. And as Frank Sinatra says, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And there's a certain accountability that you have when you are a professional in New York City. You need to bring your A game every day.
0: Assembling a team of like minded professionals, which we all were great collaborators, we're all on on the same page. Talk to us about the network that you created all over the country and how you found these people, how it all works.
1: Sure. So there were two levels of scale that I was after when I came to Compass. One was to build a team, which which I've done, private client team. But then again, that going back to that conversation I had with Robert, and I said, I really, I really want to travel with my clients, and I want to make it seamless. And a lot of clients, if they own four, five, six homes— I want to be involved and I want to have a deeper relationship with those clients. So I thought the most effective way to scale this brand was to take on and select like-minded top brokers, the top X brokers from every luxury market in the country, and just fuse them together and make it seamless experience for the client. And I have to tell you, a few top players in this industry have tried to build nationwide teams, and some of them are in three or four markets. They're in New York, they're in LA, they're in Miami, et cetera. But in those business models, they essentially take less influential agents, if you will, in these other markets, and they try to operate it all out of their primary market. And to me, that's not the highest level of service. The highest level of service is say, I'm taking a top X from every one of these markets, and we're just going to work together collectively. So what I did was I went out and Every market that Compass expanded to, I went into that market. I found a few people that I wanted to talk to, and I hand-selected who I thought not only was a producer and had influence in that market, but that was like-minded, that was highly professional, and that saw the vision of the private client network and wanted to get on board. And we started in four markets in 2018. We started to really grow into... 2020. And you could imagine like, it's, it's like we built this network for COVID because when people started moving all over the country, all of a sudden the referral business that we've shared through this network has really just grown exponentially. And we've since grown to about from four markets initially in 2018 to now we have about 60 markets. So we have 60 private client network partners out there. And I can tell you when, before building this network, when a client asked me, hey, I want to buy a house in Los Angeles, can you help me? I've tried to do that in the past and it was like, okay, let me try to find somebody or I have a relationship there. But it was really a process that I was not super comfortable with because I felt like more could go wrong than could go right. And if I put my clients in the hands with someone that I really don't know, that I really don't have a deep relationship with, it's not going to be seamless for them. And if things go wrong, I could lose a client over that. So I was hesitant to do that. So in this model with the private client network, I said, let me forge these relationships. Let's run it strategically like a business. We run it like a team. It sort of works on four levels. We collaborate, we can pool resources, Right? We can refer business to each other, and then we've created a marketing network where if I'm going on a listing pitch and I'm pitching a $15 million listing and I take a client, a potential seller through the network and how I can either nationwide create reach instantaneously or surgically go into whatever we think the feeder markets are and dial up the views of that listing through my private client network partners – I'm going to be more effective at selling that listing at somebody that doesn't have a network like this. And in terms of the collaborative impact of it, we don't compete head to head in the same market. So we all sort of let our guard down and share our secret sauce with each other when we really teach each other how to be more successful. And we inspire each other. I can tell you when COVID first hit and the country was largely locked down and real estate sort of fell out for a few weeks We were having weekly Zoom calls, and actually Robert Refkin came on one of those calls and pumped everybody up and said, now's the time to get prepared. The markets will take off again. So it's really a a support network, but it all comes back to the client. For me, now when a client calls me and says, hey, I want to buy a condo in Miami, it's not like I'll find you somebody there. No, I have a partner in Miami who I've known for years who is aligned with me in this network that is going to take excellent care of you. And it's a completely seamless process and the client feels it. So I'm building deeper relationships and everybody's winning in that regard. I'm winning, the client's winning, my private client network partner and the referred market is winning. And collectively we've gone from doing in 2020, I think we did 3 billion in sales collectively. And in 2021 we did over 7 billion and we just keep growing. The This podcast is based upon the private client network, and we're really showing people that we one-stop shop. If you literally want to buy five houses across the United States, come to the private client network, and you're going to get the same level of experience in every one of those markets where you want to make a purchase.
0: It's hard not to notice that every network partner that's done a podcast so far thanks you at the end for creating the network and for getting to be a part of it.
1: Yeah, and I thank them right back. I mean, let's face it. It's all about, from my team perspective, from the network, surround yourself with good people and good things will happen. And I live by that. And, and, you know, the network, the team isn't all about me. The network's not all about me. It's about all of us and collectively what you can do with a room full of people versus by yourself.
0: Absolutely. So every New Yorker has a specific reason for being here and probably has a list of all of the things they love most about New York. Why don't you tell us what yours are?
1: Where, where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, my pleasure. So number one, obviously for the listeners out there, I'm born and raised in New York. I am the son of a New York City fireman. I feel like we're part of the very fabric of New York. One of my sisters worked for the Board of Education for 30 years. So we're a New York family, and I grew up in Brooklyn. And from our neighborhood, we could see the skyline of Manhattan. And I have to tell you, growing up and where I grew up in a town called Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and it's a small town, but six miles from the biggest city on the planet, right? So it was really an interesting place. And a lot of people that where I grew up stayed there, and that that's their world. And I kept looking at the skyline, wanting some of that. So even in high school, I would go into the city and want to go to restaurants and go to cultural things and just want to, I was just so enamored with the city and I just couldn't wait to live and work there. So where did I get my first job? Down on Wall Street. You know, I was 24 years old and I was living in Midtown and working downtown. And every day, New York just is such a fascinating place. And it's just, it's a melting pot. And what I really love about it is I can tell you stories of people that have come from foreign countries and started out as cab drivers, and now they're worth hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, and anyone can come to New York and make a success out of themselves. And to me, it's the ultimate sort of place for entrepreneurs. So, I think it's the best restaurant town in America, so you can go out and have any kind of food that you want at any time, and it's top shelf. And the bars and the clubs, people come here to create clubs, and then people take those concepts to other places. Same thing with the restaurant scene. And then Broadway, everyone wants to come to Broadway. And how could you live your life without experiencing a Broadway play at least once a year? And then the cultural institutions and going to museums or art galleries. And then like, let's talk about healthcare, <laughs> world-class healthcare. So New York has the best of the best. And to me, it's 24-7. You can find something to do at any time. And I always say that when you go to other markets, and if you're traveling, and I traveled a lot with American Express, and I'd fly to some other market and I would try to get dinner at nine o'clock at night. And you couldn't do it. And I was like, oh my God, If there's a hundred restaurants around the block for me that are open now in New York. So you just, things that you might take for granted after living in New York for a while, when you go outside of New York and even just walking into say a deli and ordering a sandwich in New York, it's made for you in about 30 seconds. And if you're outside in New York, it takes about five minutes. I don't know. And people think New Yorkers are impatient, but I have to tell you the service delivery in this town, I always used to joke with my parents when I was living in Midtown and there was uh, Shun Li. You know, Shun Li is like a classic Chinese restaurant and I would order from Shun Lee. and I feel like a second after I hung up the phone, they're already buzzing <laughs> my apartment just how quick the delivery is in New York. So everything in New York is just world-class and whether you're in Manhattan or Brooklyn or Queens or the Bronx or Staten Island, you want to just take a ferry or a boat ride around New York. New York looks great from the water. There's just endless 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 things to do. And I, you know, I always say this, you know, for people that live in the suburbs, you ever try to ride a bicycle in the suburbs or go jogging? It's like the hardest thing to do. New York has bike lanes <laughs> and we have Central Park and other parks. I feel it's easier to go out for a jog or go for a bike ride in New York City than it is in most suburban towns. And that's really true. And I can tell you one of the best New York experiences I've ever had, and Angela's husband had this recently, I ran the New York City Marathon in 2003. And that was one of the coolest things I've ever done in my life. And not only like the challenge of running 26 miles and preparing for that, but you basically go through every neighborhood in New York City during your run. And it's just fascinating and actually keeps you sort of engaged and motivated, like you can't start the New York marathon and not finish it. I know some people get hurt and et cetera. And if you do, you got to go back the next year, you have got to finish it because it's just such an experience. So again, as I said earlier in this podcast, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And New York is just the most challenging, dynamic environment to be in. And it makes you want to be great and bring your A game every single day.
0: Wow. Thank you so much. That was an amazing conversation. And I can say as one of your team members that you certainly lead by example, your efficiency, your intelligence, you're an ethical person, you're a problem solver. You are just the king of solving problems. And anyway, point is, thank you for sharing all of this with everyone out there because you have a lot of wisdom to share. And this was excellent. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you, and thank you for being on the private client team, and thanks to Angela for helping me run it. I couldn't do it without you, and thanks to everybody else on my team and in my network. It's the most fascinating group of people I've ever been around, and I look forward to going to work each and every day. You know, Julie, this is a difficult business at times. It's very challenging. And you put good people around you, you can be successful and you have the support that you need to get through it and rise above it and excel. So thanks to you and Angela and everyone on the team and in the network, and thanks to our listeners.
0: A sincere thank you to Kevin Snedden for being our featured guest on our 10th episode of Luxury on Location. That was an inspiring conversation which we sincerely hope our listeners enjoyed. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today. We understand there are a multitude of podcasts out there, so we appreciate that you chose Luxury on Location for your listening pleasure. We hope to see you back for the first episode of season two, coming this fall, when Kevin will be speaking with another one of our private client network partners and discussing their dynamic real estate market. In the meantime, please check out the Private Client Network at Compass, your nationwide resource for luxury real estate. We operate in virtually every luxury real estate market in the country. You can find us at theprivateclientnetwork.com or on Instagram at privateclientnetwork. Until next time. We'd like to thank the sponsors of this episode of Luxury on Location. Experience luxury vehicles like never before. Are you tired of being locked into leases? Join Motor Envy. No commitment, no maintenance, no headaches. All drive. Visit motorenvy.com forward slash LOL to receive your exclusive access, courtesy of Luxury on Location. Greenwich International Film Festival is an all-female-founded nonprofit organization that harnesses the power of film to serve the greater good by bringing to attention important issues related to basic human rights, education, the environment, and health care. GIF offers films, panels, and special events throughout the year, including the prestigious Changemaker Gala, which will take place May 25, 2022, and will honor Lynn manuel Miranda for his work with the Miranda Family Fund. To learn more about GIF, our events, and membership opportunities, please visit GreenwichFilm.org.